Uh, here we are, off and running again, September the 27th, 2015, lecture discussion number 213 on the Book of Romans. And as you may remember, we last found our little band of travelers at Matthew 27, uh, 51 through 55. I need to erase something that I put on the board to remind me to put it back on the board in the correct location. So if you're wondering why I put the sun dark at that spot, it doesn't belong there. If you remember, again, there's this behold. That's what starts uh, 51 of, of Matthew 27, a behold. Uh, and that is extraordinary. It's telling you that everything that comes after this behold is extraordinarily valuable to you. They are fantastic uh, elements and events, and we need to be aware of each and every one in the order that they're in. So I have the behold, and that behold is immediately, it follows and I didn't put it up here last year, or last week, last year, last week on purpose in case you wonder if I'm neglectful. I'm not, as you'll soon see in a second. But when you see a behold, that tells you stop and look immediately before it. What happened before the behold? Well, there was the loud voice and there was darkness. What did the large, the sun, had a dark sun. What did the loud voice say uh, just before the behold? Well, the loud voice of Christ said, it is done or it is finished. Which carries with it the implication of a full payment for debt. That's what it is finished or it is done has attached to it as part of its meaning. So proceeding, let me repeat. So proceeding the behold of Matthew 27:51 is the loud voice of God himself. Christ himself, God himself declaring that the solution of sin has been effected. Now, let's repeat some of these questions from a couple of weeks ago. How loud was Christ's voice, was God's voice, when he said, it is done or it is finished, whichever you prefer? How loud was loud? How loud is loud? How many heard Christ scream that? How far did it travel? We're talking sound waves, ultimately, right? It's the physics of sound. As you know... This is a proclamation. It is finished. It is done. It is very loud. And it can be felt. You can feel sound waves. Sound waves push against air. And, and we are all within the medium, the atmospheric medium that is air. Now, there's exceptions to that, of course. Uh, temporal exceptions. But generally, allow me the generality. We're in air. And I've often wondered about John 18.5 in context with these, it is finished, it is done, whichever you prefer. 18.5 is where the, the temple guard and the Jewish, I'm sorry, and the Roman soldiers, the temple Jewish temple guard and the Roman soldiers came to Christ in the garden and he says to them, I am. And they are driven to the ground. So I've wondered about that from a physics standpoint. What did it feel like to those men? Had they ever felt anything like it before? Clearly, pressure came. Pressure was exerted. There's a concussive force involved in the voice of the Lord God of creation. And the, and the voice of Christ, the voice of God is a frightful thing. For those of you who want to quickly go and run about and research that, 
while I continue. Revelation 19.15, Exodus 20, Exodus 20.19 being more specific. Israel is fearful of the sound. It terrified them. It hurt them. They said, don't let him speak to us, to Moses. Go and you speak to us. You have to be in between us and God. So, all of that, understand the voice of God, a frightful event. Jesus Christ, that's God himself in the flesh. The Lord God of creation. Nothing is created except through Christ. He's speaking aloud at his crucifixion in an extraordinary um, loud voice. And when he's doing such, we need to consider the implications. We need to note the what I would call the collateral impact of it. Or at least concede the existence that his voice went a long, long way. How far did it travel? And the same question can be asked, by the way, at Mount Sinai. How, lo- how far did God's voice travel at Mount Sinai? You should someday read what uh, the philosophers at the time had to say about all of that. You'll be shocked at how far they think God's voice traveled. In other words, don't anthropomorphize. Don't put yourself on the... Don't assume this is a a normal person here. This is God himself. All of that to say what happened. Loud voice, dark sun, loud voice, behold, and now the veil is torn into two pieces. You ever ask yourself, why was it only torn into two pieces? Why wasn't it torn into three pieces? Why was it torn from the top? What's the purpose of tearing it in the first place? Is that the only option he had? The answer to that is yes. Why? He's omniscient. But why didn't he grant the hypothetical or the premise? Why didn't he burn it? Why didn't he turn it to dust? Why didn't he just take it? (coughs) Excuse me. He didn't do any of those. He chose to tear it in two. That which obstructed access to the Shekinah glory of God was ruptured and breached. Now, Shekinah glory was not there. See Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, when, he, when the Shekinah glory left the temple. But the, the veil was there, and it was ruptured and torn in two. So the obvious question, what did that? What caused it to tear? What could have possibly tore this extremely heavy, thick, interwoven curtain that was one piece, and it's in place, it's between, it's, it obstructs access to the Holy of Holies. Something tore it from top to bottom in two. And most people, if you read, will say that it was the earthquake that did it. If you remember the list from a couple of weeks ago, or last week, there was an earthquake, right? Well, now, uh, considering the order that I have the the behold and then I have the loud voice, I have the loud voice and then the behold and then I have the renting of the veil, I think it's beyond obvious that it wasn't the earthquake, that it was the voice of Christ that tore the veil in two. Christ has to tear it in two because nothing else can tear it in two. Does that make sense? What it's doing is it's blocking access to God. Who removes the access to God? Christ does. If you, if you, if you have as so many do that the earthquake did that, that he used the earthquake, then you add another element to access to God, which I don't think is doctrinally sound. 
Why did he tear it from the top? Shouldn't that be also obvious to you? What do you theorize split the rocks? Now, to be fair, having experienced a 9.2 earthquake, uh, I have uh, I have first-hand knowledge. I've seen what a 9.2 earthquake can do. I watched it do it. Um, 9.2 earthquakes can and do split rocks rather easily. And they split trees, and they split buildings, and they split roads, and they split everything. It wasn't hard for an earthquake to split the rocks. And so concede that to be, conceding that to be the case, or at least quite possible, did the earthquake split the rocks? Did then the earthquake raise the bodies of the dead? No, that's clearly the earthquake did not do that. Can an earthquake raise the dead? No. So the earthquake position that the uh, that the earthquake was responsible for tearing the veil in two, and the earthquake split the rocks and opened the graves, and and that caused people to be resurrected. Don't watch the movies, right? So we know that the voice of Christ will raise the dead. John eleven forty three. Now, when he had said these things, he cried forth with a loud voice, or he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come. And Lazarus responds. The voice of God will easily tear the veil and easily raise the dead. Uh, uh, let, me, uh, let me add this scripture because we, you need to see, or we need to recognize, this relationship that starts to develop between loud voices and um, raising the dead. First Thessalonians 4. Let me, uh, for this we say to you, uh, 4.15, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will, let me go back, will by no means precede those who are asleep. By the way, again, only believers are described as asleep. Non-believers are never described in Scripture as asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, a loud voice, if you will, with the voice of, of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So I have the shout, I have the asleep, and I have the dead will rise. I have those three things again. We can recognize those elements from Matthew 27, 50 through 55, which is where we've been, right? So let's go look at that again. Read that again. Oops. Then behold... Actually, let me back up to 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And we know that he said in that loud voice, it is done. Then behold, the veil was of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies, repeat that, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. 
And, the, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the of Zebedee's sons. And there is your list, right? That's what's on the board, what I just read. Loud voice again, asleep again, were raised again. So those elements are in Thessalonians. Those elements are in John 11.43 at, uh, at uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. Remember that. I hope you do. John 11.11. I'm going very fast here on purpose. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And he does so with a loud voice. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life, John 11:25. So once again, I have sleep, I have resurrection, I have loud voice. John 11, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. Matthew 27, 51, or 50 through 55. So the voice of God... Raises the dead. Whosoever believes in me shall never die. So obviously the shouting at the sleeping body of Lazarus and the loud voice at the fallen asleep in the tombs at the resurrection or the crucifixion of Christ. And the shout or the raising at 1 Thessalonians 4 at the rapture. We've got to start seeing all of those for the likeness of characteristics that they possess. Start asking ourselves, why does he do it this way all the time? It's useful to utilize 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 18 when you study Lazarus and the donkey foal. As well as Matthew 27, 50 through 55. I've said before, we get here today many times, I hope, the donkey foal don't separate it from the resurrection of Lazarus. There's a reason he did those in that order. He raised Lazarus. And he rode atop, or he was over uh, above, Zechariah 9.9, right? The donkey foal. So don't separate the donkey foal from Lazarus. Just as a rabbit trail here. Keep in mind that the loud voice of God spoke all things into existence from nothing. So the voice of God is a pretty good piece of equipment. Resurrecting the dead is most certainly within the job description of the voice of God. The voice of God, the voice of Christ, that's the exact same thing. Whenever Christ speaks in a loud voice, back you are into creation and into exodus. The voice of God has an infinite radius, if you will. So now, what's the most obvious of the obvious questions? What's the point of this earthquake? Did the voice of God cause the earthquake? Or was the earthquake just, you know, it's time for an earthquake. It just so happened that at the crucifixion of Christ, we had an earthquake. Why the darkness? He darkens the sun. He screams in a loud voice. 
The veil tears, earthquakes occur, rocks are split, graves are opened, people are resurrected, and they go into Jerusalem. Why the earthquake? Why the darkness? Again, the infinite voice of Christ is, was sufficient to tear the veil and split the rocks and raise the bodies and reinstall the living souls of the dead with the bodies. What then is the reason for the earthquake? I hear a radio or something. Do I hear a radio? Or is somebody talking back there? Who's talking? It can't be TJ. We can blame him, though. We can shut the doors, and then we can all be subject to the fire system. Did you you dispense with the uh, insurgents there? Okay, good. Good job. Back to where was I? What is the reason for the earthquake? To bring that question to some semblance of resolution is going to require what do we do? What do we do? We've got to figure out what the earthquake. I have an earthquake at the crucifixion. I want to know why. Did you just assume that God said, well, what we need here is an earthquake and I don't really have a reason. It seems like a cool thing to do. That can't be true. Don't think that way. Don't drop the magic dry erase marker again. Why this earthquake? How are we going to solve it? How do we always solve it when we have a question like this? Yes, uh, the least is doing this for their finger. What we do is we go and find, we're going to have to extensively investigate all the earthquakes in Scripture. Where is the first place we should go? We have the crucifixion earthquake. What other earthquake in the Bible is going to rise to the level of the crucifixion earthquake? Well, there's really only one that does that, and that is Revelation 16. So let's read Revelation 16, 17 through 21. So what we're doing is why a crucifixion Earthquake. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. So this is the seventh bowl and the seventh angel. What do you think we're going to read about next? What's going to come up next? I'll do it. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came. That's a shock, right? came out of the temple of heaven. What do you suppose the loud voice said? It is done. What he said. Now I have two it is done's and two earthquakes. One at the crucifixion, one at the seventh bowl in the tribulation. It is done and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts. Jerusalem divided into three parts. Why three parts? What's that got to do with the veil going into two parts? In the first earthquake I got the veil cut in two. The second earthquake I got the city divided into three. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. 
And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each one, each hailstone, about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. An earthquake of such power that the mountains were leveled, islands are gone. Those of you who are thinking about retiring on a tropical island, you might rethink, reconsider. Might get a motor home, something. You maneuver. Islands gone, mountains leveled. This is the greatest of all earthquakes ever. That's what he says. Since the creation. And so I have the great earthquake and I have the crucifixion earthquake. So the revelation. um, Let me get the right verse for you here. Revelation 17. Oh, I got 16. Yeah, 16, sorry. 16, 18. I got it? 16, 18. These two are obviously in the same structure, if you will. They have to be related. They have to have a direct connective relationship. Why did he knock down all the mountains? Why did he get rid of all the islands? And why did he, in the tribulation, cut the city of Jerusalem into three pieces? What does Jerusalem represent here? And I, the reason, the purpose of each, I submit, will be identical, if not similar. If you study this earthquake and figure out why he did what he did, and you study the crucifixion earthquake, you'll find out that he's really doing something quite similar, certainly related to one another. If you learn what one does, you'll fully understand or more fully understand what the other one is doing. The crucifixion earthquake and the mighty and great earthquake both occur after the loud voice. So one of the purposes of the loud voice is to do what? Is to cause an earthquake. Why does he want to cause an earthquake? Both occur after the voice of God. The loud, loud voice of God utters the exact same words. It is done, or if you prefer, it is finished. Now all we have to do to help us figure this out is to go find all of the I, it is done in the Bible. How many are there? Some say three, some say four. I say four, but the final one is at Revelation 21.6. And I have long held the view that there are four. Four times that God says it is done. Two of the four are followed by earthquakes. And two of the four are followed by creative events. Putting the four of those together is going to be helpful to understanding why he does earthquakes. Again, let's repeat the question. Why does God shake the foundations, or what he calls the pillars of, of the earth. Why does he do it? First he lays the foundation, Psalm 104.5, then he causes the foundations to shake. Again, why? What's he proving? Why does he do it? What purposes do earthquakes serve to God? What's the meaning of earthquakes to God? And while you think about that, I'm going to move along. As I often do. You can figure it out pretty fast, can't you? I know one reason he does it, because I went through it. March 27, 1964. 
I remember what I thought. When it happened. Do you know that that earthquake was so powerful it actually liquefied clay? So you had a house built on clay, as the Bible talks about, that clay became water. How's your foundation doing? Not so good. What are you thinking? What did that cause people to consider? What do you have faith in? Anyway, notice, let's go back over to our list. Notice the lists uh, are plural, and I have to say that. I have the transfiguration list uh, from two weeks ago, and then I have last week's uh, list here from Matthew 27, 50 through 55. So I'm doing both lists simultaneously, even though I'm just showing you this one. Don't try this at home. It truly is for a professional uh, religious professional that I am. Okay, I'm neither of those, neither religious nor professional. Hopefully, you're aware of Lecture 212. That's from September 20th. If you're not, um, I'll refer to it next week, but uh, I can't do it today so much. Where I'm sorry, not uh, September 20th, September 13th. Today will be back to September 20th. For the question, hopefully you're familiar with this. At least if you weren't here, you know about what this topic is. This is where a bunch of resurrected saints, people that were dead at the crucifixion, at the time of the crucifixion, we have to deal with how long is the crucifixion. Um, How long, and I'm going to say that the crucifixion is... I not only have the event of the crucifixion, I have the atonement of the crucifixion, and then I have the resurrection following the crucifixion. So how long is this period of time, and where does everything fit into it? If you think all of this occurred in 15 minutes, you're in, in trouble. That's not how it happened. The Hebrews, Matthew, when he writes, he's a Jew, and he writes to other Jews, and he wants to make sure you understand that Jews don't write chronologically. They all very often, and sometimes uh, they inject time, large amounts of time, thousands of years in what they write, one verse to the next, or one sentence to the next, sometimes within the same sentence. The first part of the sentence could be one period of time. The second part of the sentence could be uh, thousands of years later. So understand that, and all we're dealing with is this crucifixion period. But just for... Hopefully you know that sometime in that crucifixion period, I had people that had been dead and they were resurrected. And they went into Jerusalem. The anatomy or the steps of this is for us to resolve. But so far at least we have established this, I believe. Uh, How's that for a disclaimer? Hundreds if not thousands of people went into Jerusalem that had been dead. Dead people rose up, came out of their graves, tombs, if you will. Rocks were split. Access to those graves were now available to anyone. Those people came out by the hundreds, if not thousands, and they went into Jerusalem where Matthew says they appeared to many and had no effect. Let me repeat that. Thousands of people that were dead went into Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem is swelled up because of the Passover. Tremendous amount of people in Jerusalem right now. Well over a million people are there. So I have thousands of resurrected dead people, as I said last week, went into Jerusalem. No one even knew them. 
Hardly anyone knew them. I made the case if they had been long dead, no one would know them. As I said last week, uh, just imagine if George Washington walked in the door and come up on stage and said, Hi, it's me, George Washington. How many of you would believe him? Good. None of you would believe him. It's likely to happen here. Uh, so whoever these people were that went into Jerusalem, who would, who would believe them? What did they look like? How long had they been dead? Were they mortal or immortal? Those are the questions we asked last week. And we're going to continue along those veins. But I'm saying that to repeat the, uh, the main central focus here, thousands of them went into this city that had swelled over a million people, walked amongst everybody and said, Hey, I'm resurrected from the dead. It just happened to me. I don't think they did that at all, as you know. Thousands of them went into the city of Jerusalem where there's a million people at Passover and it had no effect on the city at all. And as you know, the atheistic community believes that this is such a tremendous sign that if it had happened, that everyone in Jerusalem would be saved. I'm telling you again, no one in Jerusalem was saved by this. Hardly anyone even knew it happened. To repeat the central point from last Sunday is that though one is sent, in this case hundreds are sent, that have been resurrected from the dead, though thousands have been sent, completely healed and restored from leprosy as well. Not only did he send thousands from the dead, he sent thousands from leprosy. No one cared. That's the point. Had no impact. Actually, somebody cared. A very few people cared. Who were those people, and why did they care? The overarching truth to this is mankind will not believe, mankind will not repent, though one comes resurrected from the dead. We've established the fact that that is true. The Bible does it as well, so what we establish doesn't have any value. Overwhelming physical evidence is not a determining factor. People don't care. And that's going to be demonstrated over and over and over again in the tribulation. The question becomes then, why do some choose to live and some choose to believe in the name of Jesus Christ and others, the vast majority, in spite of the evidence that God presents to them, they choose death, they choose wickedness, they choose rebellion. There's accept and belief, and there's reject and unbelief. And what is the basis? What causes somebody to accept and believe? And believe, why do so many choose death? Choose to reject their creator. How can this be that thousands of resurrected dead people go into the city and it didn't have any impact? On the majority, overwhelming majority of the city. Again, remember what I... I said Luke 16, 29 through 31. They will not be moved by the testimony of the resurrected. They will not be persuaded. Though one resurrected from the dead comes to them, they will not care. won't matter. And that's not true of everybody. Some people cared a lot. I said last week again, who were these people and who did they talk to? And I made the case that they came in to that city and where did they go? 
if they talked to somebody and said, hey, I, my name's Fred. I just got resurrected from the dead. Notice the rhyme. No applause at all. If they said that to anybody, nobody would believe them, as I just pointed out. How long would they say it to people? Pretty soon they stopped saying it. How many people in a row before they said, well, this isn't working, so where did they go? They went back to the people that knew them. That's what they did. That's what they did first. That's what I would do first. That's what you would do first. But there are somebody, somebodies that saw it and they were stunned by it. And that's the Roman execution detail. That's the people with the assignment to kill God. It didn't go well for them, as you know. They had no chance of killing God. But let's read what they said. So when the centurion, read, read this part. So when the centurion and those with him, that's the Romans there. How many I got? Let's just throw out a number and say there's probably 20 of them. I got some assigned to the crucifixion. I got some assigned to crowd control. I've got some assigned for perimeter defense. I've got some assigned. Could have 20. That would be fair. So when the centurion, how many does the centurion command? He could command a lot more than that. So let's say if you want to, he might have a hundred or a thousand, but I, I don't think so. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things, one of the things that they saw, or one of the things they could have saw, could they have seen the veil torn in two? By the way, how dark is it? It's pretty dark. But they, did they see the veil torn in two? Well, they're outside the city. Where's the veil? It's inside the temple. Could they have seen that? Probably not. Did they see the rock split? Well, could. Seems likely. How about the graves opened? Did they see bodies resurrected? When did they see it, by the way? Let me go back. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the great things, oh, I'm sorry, and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many, many times I've said over the years that Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do without dispute, without argument or controversy. Luke 23, 34, what Christ said refers to that Roman execution squad. That's who got forgiven. That's who got saved. How many of them do you think got saved? All of them. This centurion witnessed the exact moment of Christ's death and that centurion knew that this has to be God. Can't be anything else. He'd seen way too many crucifixions. He knew this one is not like any of those. He knew that this had to be God. Mark 15, 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite God saw that... By the way, his job was to guard God. That was one of his jobs. Now that's a pretty easy job. Completely requires nothing from you. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this. Let me put that on the board. He cried out 
God cried out like this. What do you suppose that means? When the satyrian who stood opposite Christ, opposite him, opposite God, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, the centurion said, truly, this man was God himself. So the centurion heard the, la- the loud voice of God. And he went, holy mackerel, honey child, this is God. He not only heard the voice, he saw what the voice did. Who but God himself can cry out like this? Who but God has complete authority over death? But what else did the forgiven Romans see? You see, this is the question of the open graves. Did the forgiven Romans witness the resurrections of the saints? I think they did. They were certainly nearby. They certainly had access. They saw the things that had happened. The resurrections of the saints is a thing that happened. Duh. But when did it happen? Again, how many nights did the Romans stay with Christ? The clock is off, by the way. Somebody has turned the switch off, and that has removed the clock for me. I will have to trust you. Oh, oh, I see. So the, this is a, this is some kind of test filming thing, huh? So I should be professional then. No, that would be a complete change of operation. So how much time do I have? Wow. I have two more minutes. That's not true. Don't believe that. Okay, well, I will trust you against all of my instincts. I'm just kidding. A ten-minute warning would be fantastic. How many nights did the Romans stay with Christ? How many days and nights was Christ with the Romans before he was no longer accessible to the Romans? Three days, three nights. So I have three days and three nights to deal with. When did the sights come out of the graves? How many think day one? Don't ever raise your hand here. How many think day two? Notice I raised two hands. How many think day three? You have to have a position. When did the saints come out of the graves? When did the centurion uh, see the saints? When did he hear the voice? How much time between the voice and the saints coming out of the grave? When did the saints resurrect? Is there a difference between the time they resurrected? Did they sit in the graves going, hey, I'm resurrected. Maybe I'll hang around for a few minutes, maybe a couple of days, and then I'll go into Jerusalem. On which day did they enter the city of Jerusalem? Did they talk to the forgiven Romans? Just imagine this chaos, if you will. I've got darkness. I've got an earthquake. I've got all this stuff. Loud voice. For three days and three nights, the forgiven Romans were surrounded by all of this chaos. And they're, they're marinated in it. And what about those women, remember, that are from afar? They're looking at all of this stuff, too. How afar is afar? How far is afar? How dark was dark? 
Matthew 27:45. Who saw what and when did they see it? Who heard the loud voice? I think every we can agree. Who felt the earthquake? I think we can agree that everyone heard the loud voice. Everyone felt the earthquake. Now, did everyone understand what the voice said? My sheep hear my voice, John 10, 25 through 33, right? Well, by the way, he says that right before he resurrects Lazarus. Just let you know. Right before he rides the donkey foal and resurrects Lazarus, he says, my sheep hear my voice. Remember this. Oh, I'm going to have to put this on the board. This is going to slow me down. Can't leave this out. Remember John, the Apostle John, he's writing seven things to make sure that you know that Christ is God. It's called a Passover pattern. He writes seven things in a Passover pattern, a Passover template or a Passover motif. Motif, I'm sorry. He presents seven great signs. Which is the first sign that Christ does in John's seven sign uh, progression? It's water into wine. That's the first thing he wants you to know that proves God is there. This is God. Water into wine. That is evidence because what it means, not just what he did, but what it means. He's putting blood, if you will, into cracked vessels and restoring them. Then he does this nobleman's son, right? Nobleman's son. That's part of his seven. Again, not just what he did there, what it means. He did something that only God can do. Water into wine is a picture of resurrection. Nobleman's son is um, the paralytic man. That's the third one. All of them have deep meaning. Loaves and fish, or bread and fish, if you will. Um, Walking on the water, above the water. Saving Israel. Peter is a picture of Israel there. The man blind from birth. Are we all blind from birth? Thank you. The last, the big culmination, if you will, is Lazarus and the donkey fall. Those are the seven things that John the Apostle puts in order to prove to you something about Christ. And what he's proving to you is that Christ is God. All of these seven parts uh, add a doctrinal truth to the one previous until a whole is attained. And so we have to know what Christ is saying and teaching with these seven things. John goes on to say there's so many things that he did, I can't even begin to, I don't know, book could contain everything he did. I'm going to give you these seven, and that's going to prove it to you. Oh, and by the way, if that doesn't prove it to you, then all you need to know is that we caught 153 fish. There. Definitive proof. It can't get any more obvious than that. 
If you could just figure out those seven things, what, what he did and the meaning of what he did, and then if that doesn't help you, then you know that 153 fish is going to take care of it. There's your definitive proof of who Christ... You won't believe a resurrected person. If a resurrected person comes to you, you won't believe it. But you will believe if you can figure this out. You will believe with Moses and the prophets, right? So these are seven parts of a doctrinal truth. And we have to figure out eventually what Christ is saying and teaching with those seven things. Okay? That will be next week. Put those seven together. I've done it before. I'll try to do it in a way that's a lot different and a little bit more complicated. Typically, I do it simply first because most people aren't interested in the complicated version. And I wish we had time today to get into it, but I don't. This is John's definitive proof. Okay, where was I? Yeah, Matthew 27, 50 through 55, the, the centurion in his platoon. Everyone heard the loud voice, but who heard the loud voice? Does that make sense? The sheep heard what the voice said. Everybody else felt the concussive or the uh, uh, percussive, if you will, the pressure. Hopefully that made sense to you. Who actually heard what he said and knew what he meant? Graves are opened. On one of the three days did the graves get opened? Saints were resurrected. Again, on which of the three days? Those saints that came out, how many were wrapped in burial clothes? How long have they been in there? Again, I think it's recent. I think these are reasonably recent. Within a year. He picked people with, picked people with, uh, with, that could be recognized. How would you recognize somebody? Let's say that it's me that died. No cheering. Let's say it's me. You want people to uh, laugh when you're born and cry when you die and not the other way around. Okay, we had coffee spilt for those of you on the internet asking why I'm stopping and now everyone is rushing to take care of the coffee spill. It's not Cindy's fault. <laughs> the people in Australia will be pleased to know, Cindy, that uh, you did not spill the coffee, as far as we can tell. But you are responsible for cleaning it up. Yeah, okay. Think about these people. Again, how many were wrapped in burial clothes? I think they're recent because they had to be recognized. And again, if it was me and I have come out of the grave after I've been in there for five years, just to name a number, what would I look like? Would I look like this? I hope not. I don't want to look like this. I would look like me, how me thinks I look like. Every time I go by a mirror, I expect to see me. I never see me. I am not there. Me has gone. There is no me. But I would look like me. Am I mortal or immortal? How fast am I? How strong am I? How much of my mind is working as opposed to now? Am I wrapped in burial clothes? Again, I have to be recognized. I want to go to my family and say what to them? It's me. You won't believe this, but I got resurrected at the crucifixion. He could have resurrected anybody. He picked me. Why did he pick me? 
Why was I one of the ones? What would I be thinking? I would be thinking, I got resurrected. Why? Would I find the other resurrected people? We're all in the same graveyard. Of course I'd find them. What would we do? Why are we resurrected? How many people are in that graveyard? Hundreds of thousands, probably. Mass graves there. But I'm one of the ones. Why did he pick me? Well, it'd be obvious why he picked me. I would know immediately why he picked me. Why did he pick me? He picked me because I would go to somebody that he really picked who would care when they saw me. Who's the first person I'm probably going to see? A Roman. And that Roman cares. Every one of those guys got saved. You know how I know? Father, save them. They don't know what they're doing. Christ says, save, you get saved. That's good word. That's good news. Again, was I wrapped in burial clothes? Did, did, I, did, did they require unwrapping these resurrected as did Lazarus? Who unwrapped them? Did they ultimately congregate together? What would you do if you were one of these resurrected and others around you were likewise resurrected? We've got to decide on this mortal or immortal decision. Consider now, I've got a large group of resurrected people. What would they say to each other? Did they know before they were resurrected that they were going to be resurrected? Did they have an assigned mission? I believe they did. Go and see this, these people. They would do it instinctively. Had they been briefed beforehand? How does Ephesians 4.9, 2 Corinthians 12.4, Revelation 2.7, Luke 23.43, and 1 Peter 3.19 fit into this? I could write those on the board, but Terithathy has told me I have two minutes. Let me phrase it this way. Has there been a reorganization in the intermediate state as a result of Christ's resurrection and therefore the resurrection of these saints? Has he changed the intermediate state? Some say yes. Some say no. See or no. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Charles Ryrie. Absolute opposite on this position. And next week... We will investigate that. should be almost as much fun as today. Next week, finish this. Go back to Matthew 17 if you want to get ahead and deal with uh, was there a reorganization in the intermediate state? Did he change where people were and put them someplace else? There's the best way to explain it.